again because of my i guess personal dark past of like growing up in a uh, broken home family i think even if i'm not a successful person uh, i i would love if my life can inspire someone who would be successful whether that's gonna be my own kids or someone who i don't even know not even in indonesia not even you know um, in in uh, this part of the region uh, i hope that my life can inspire people hi i'm amanda kua and this is one more scoop here we're sitting down with southeast asia's top founders executives and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Joshua Kevin was the founder and CEO of Talenta, an Indonesian HR software startup that was acquired by Makari in 2018. This is just a fantastic episode. Joshua has been part of the Indonesian startup ecosystem since its early days and has worked across the board in different roles, being a tech journalist, VC, and then a founder. And even as a founder, he's been through the entire experience of building a company, exiting it, and really figuring his life post-exit and finding out what's next for him. It's a tough journey, at work and outside of work. And I'm just thankful to Joshua for his honesty and allowing me to share this conversation we have together. If you're still deciding whether you want to listen to this entire episode or not, I'm telling you, listen to it and you won't regret a thing. Enjoy. Hi, Joshua. So nice to speak with you again today. Yay. Finally, after almost one year. I know it's, it's actually so great that we get to meet again at this time, like over a podcast. And I feel like last time we started to talk more about Rascoop and myself. And I feel like I didn't get the chance to ask more about you, even though I felt like your story is so much more interesting. So I'm happy to have the opportunity Thank today. <laughs> yay, yay. I've been waiting for this. It's been weeks off scheduling, I think. Finally, we can talk. I think it's going to be worth the wait. But yeah, like honestly, out of all of the things that I've seen from you, And from all the different experiences I've had so far with the podcast, the one thing I'm always curious about is like, who are you? And I feel like the best way to like answer what helped shape who you are now is asking about what was your childhood like? What were you like when you were growing up? Sure. I think I would definitely start by saying that I think my background is not as privileged. I still consider myself as privileged, but I would say if you look at the stats of funded startup founder, I think most of them actually graduated from overseas. If not the US, then at least Singapore. Well, I actually graduated from local university. I think when I look back at my childhood, um, it's also not the typical startup founder childhood. Well, like actually both of my parents are divorced since elementary school. So I pretty much grew up with my dad. Um, and that's also what gave me the entrepreneur bug, I guess. I've always watched him grow his own business. I mean, it's not a tech business, but still like I, to see him grow his own business, I think that inspired me to grow my own business. But at the same time, I think a lot of people see background or like stories when they grow up as a potential way to define someone. I think most of my high school friends also thought of me that way as well. So when I actually had a catch up with most of my high school friends, they were actually surprised like, hey, you're here, you're actually made something. So I think 
that's what I guess in a way I want to highlight as well or share in this podcast where like you can actually be successful. I mean, success is a relative word, but I just want to also, I guess, inspire more people. Hopefully, even though they have a challenging background, it's still possible to make something. I think from a lot of different stories that I've listened to from other podcasts, I think in contrary to what people might think in high school, I feel like having a background that is not the most ideal, like maybe having a separated parents, etc., actually motivate people to be more independent or more try to be more successful mm. in the future or try to just push despite whatever adversity they encounter. Do you think that's the same experience that you had? Yeah, I think I sort of like have that in my shoulder, in my heart as well, like this burning sensation of like, oh, I need to make something so then I can improve everyone wrong. Like, hey, I can actually do it as well. I don't know how, to be honest. And I think I actually had a what you might say as a turning point. Fun fact, my real name is actually not Joshua. My real name is actually Kevin. And then in my high school, I had what you might call as a dark past. So in my high school, because of my parents broke up and everything, I sort of passed this teenager angst, maybe, if you can see that, where I put all of my energy or angst to gambling, actually. So I had bad past where like I gambled, even though I don't have money. When you're high school, high schooler, you don't have that much pocket money. And so the bookie or the dealer is actually my senior in high school. And because I don't have money, then when I lose, of course, just like any gambler would, you would double up and like you would actually keep doubling and then you actually couldn't pay. And in one moment, because I couldn't pay, the senior would actually call me up into the field where actually everybody is there. And this person actually hit me in the face. And so like, that's one of my lowest points of my life. I think most of my best friend actually evaded me after that. Because they don't want to be associated with someone who has that branding. And so for most people, high school has a lot of like beautiful like fun memories. For me, it's not because of that incident. I actually joined a church where I got baptized. So the name Joshua is actually my Christian name. And believe it or not, I think ever since I got baptized and received that name, every single year has been better than the before. And so it feels like a turning point of my life. After I got baptized, I think my first entry point to tech or my career is actually I met Wilson, partner at East Ventures. And I think after meeting him, he basically offered me a job. The title was, I think, associate back then. At the same time, because I was blogging on my own, writing about tech and everything, he was like, what are you doing writing for your own blog? Who's going to read it? And then he's pointing me out to Willis and like, you should write for tech in Asia. So I was like, yeah, sure. It's going to get me some pocket money. So like, why not? So yeah, I think it literally goes from there. Like because of tech in Asia and East Ventures, I think I met most of the people, including Ron, who is the first guest of this podcast. And Ron is definitely also one of my biggest influence as well in my tech career or even as an individual. He has been mentoring me a lot. Wow, that's a lot. I think the first thing I really want to ask is like, how did you get into like gambling of all things? I mean, you said you had a dark past. I feel like mm. there are lots of things that you could end up doing, but how did you get into gambling specifically? I don't want to say that this is like a stereotype, but it is. So actually my dad is, he was born in Medan. And if you talk to any Medanese people, you would associate a lot of the guys as people who like to take risks and so gamble. So 
my dad gambles, most of my uncles gambles. And so I guess in a way, I was also inspired in a bad way from him. And so when I was looking for something as a release, I guess, in my teens, okay, I'll just follow my dad and like do what he does. But of course, like with any gambling, players always lose and house always wins. But because I don't have money, luckily, I don't have money. I couldn't pay. And then I had to get my dad to pay. And yeah. After like the incident where you got stabbed in school, like did you stop gambling? Was that the end of everything? Good question. I think growing up after that, I wouldn't lie and say I never gambled anymore. I think I did. But I think that incident made me realize that gambling is not something where you can earn money. Mm -hmm. I think nowadays if I gamble, it's for fun between friends, for example. Let's say you play poker with your founder friends on a Saturday night. You don't really care when you lose. It's just a fun game mm-hmm. kind of thing, just to make it fun. Rather than like, oh, I need to win $10,000 by gambling kind of situation. Got it. And then what influenced you to join a church? Was there somebody who told you that you should join? Did you see it somewhere or was it all on your own? So I actually grew up all the way Christian. So my mom is a Christian, although my dad is not really a believer. But throughout school, from my auntie school all the way to my senior high school, I was in a Christian high school, Christian schools. So the name is Anabur. I think a lot of the founders might also graduate from that school. So I've always grew up learning about the Bible. But growing up, I was always thinking about it as like part of the study not really believing, but only like, yeah. And then I think one day my mom just told me like, hey, do you want to go to my church? So I've always said no in the past, but I think there was one time where like, yeah, I'll go. And then I got addicted in a good way because the pastor always did things in his sermon that I can relate to. And after several months, it inspired me to also receive new life. And for me to get into that capism as well, it's also really, quote unquote, a godsend. Because originally, my sister is the one who was supposed to get baptized. And then when she got the call, I was like, hey, can I join? Oh, okay. My sister would ask them and like, yeah, just bring in your sister and brother as well. The interesting part is that actually to receive baptism, you have to be a member of the church for X number of years first. So then they know that you're serious, you're all in, and you have really be part of the church before you got baptized. But I wasn't up to that level yet. And so again, for me to get baptized itself, it is something that is a godsend, I would say. How long had you been going to that church in college before you got baptized? I think only a few months, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was quite quick. And to be honest, like if they told me like, hey, you need to wait, maybe I wouldn't do it. Got it. The weird thing is that way. Yeah, but because I got express access, so I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm curious, like, did it already feel like a turning point when you first joined the church, maybe for the first week or the second week? Or was it during or after the baptism? When was the real turning point for you? Like, when did you actually sit back and tell yourself, wait, I think this really is a turning point for me? I think week by week, I already feel changes, but it doesn't feel big in a way. Right? It feels incremental. Like, you just there and, and you're listening to the words and you feel relating to it and that's it but then i think after the actual baptism i feel like i did something substantial and then only after a year or two of the baptism and then i look back and like okay i feel like everything is changing every year 
And only after you look back, you realize how much you have grown. So when you're in it, you don't really see much changes, right? But like when you actually look back, I think that's when you realize how far you have went. So when did you actually look back and then realize that, oh, there's so much has changed? Was there a specific incident? To be honest, like I've always tried to review my years. Every time the new year, as we all do, like make new year resolution everything. But then I think the biggest realization is when, again, I sold Talenta, I guess, back in 2018. And when I look back, like, how can someone like me actually raise Angel Round from someone from a billionaire group, raise Takir, raise Seed Round from East, and then actually build a company and then actually sell it? It couldn't have been just me. It's not possible for someone like me to actually do it. So it really feels that way when I realize what I have achieved. And again, I think every single year after that as well. Like, if you think about it, like, after I sold, 2019, I actually did a sabbatical. If I was late by one year, I wouldn't do any sabbatical right now <laughs> with the COVID and everything. So I think, again, like when I look back every single year after I got baptized, like it feels like God always exists in every achievement, whether that's small or big that I did. And yeah, it's just been learning and really appreciating what he has done in my life, really. Can you tell me about how you started getting into the startup ecosystem? Was that like the first touchpoint with the ecosystem when you met Wilson of East Ventures? Or was there something even earlier, like you realizing you wanted to get in the ecosystem? Yes. I think when I started my university years, I realized that I wanted to also change. I think I was very passive in my high school. I mean, with or without the incident. And I made a promise, I guess, to myself, like I need to be more active. I need to join more organizations. I need to go to events and do more things. And so even in my uni, I always join any seminars, any entrepreneurship seminars. I joined the student body as well. Um, and I think also what helped me actually get into the startup ecosystem was actually Twitter. Back then, people were like only tweeting like, hey, where I am, checking in on Foursquare, tweeting what I'm eating. But I actually followed a lot of the early startup members or ecosystem players back then. One of them was actually Natalie, father of Ticket. Com. So he was also tweeting back then, and he was actually the founder of an early community called Startup Local. That was the first community actually in Indonesia uh, for startups. And by following him, like I know that there's going to be events like every month. And so I started attending. And after attending, I started helping. So like I became sort of like their helpers or like volunteers. And because I was always there, then I started to network with a lot of people as well, including meeting Wilson. So yeah, I guess... If you really look back, even before I was actually already going to the events and making myself visible as a help to the ecosystem players. But at the time, was it like a paid job? It was a volunteer job, right? Like a free job? Yeah, 100% volunteer. So they need someone to, you know, let's say manage their social media. Let's say on the day of events, they need someone to, you know, let's say receive the attendees checking them in. So yeah, even small things really, really, really help because everyone is doing it for free. We're not taking any, I think all of our events are like sponsored. So like we don't really get revenue out of it. It's purely community play. And at the time you were a college student, right? And what year was that? So yes. everybody has context on how early the startup ecosystem was way back then. <laughs> right, right. So I think this was 2010. So my second year of uni. So again, like I think starting from then, I think I did a lot of classes before for real life experience, I would say. I think a lot of my uni friends was like, what are you doing? 
ditching your passes. But like, um, I guess now I can say to them, like, what, what are you doing? Right. Uh, in a way, because I think like, I mean, no disrespect to my uni, but like, I think a lot of the classes are pretty boring because they just read the um, slides. <laughs> so I can read it by myself. Yeah. I, I definitely didn't regret uh, ditching the classes. And then after graduating uni, your first job was the associate role at East Ventures? Or was that even before you graduated? No, yeah. So so actually, I, I got into East Ventures and Tech in Asia while I was in uni. So second, third year uni was actually me doing work with East Ventures and Tech in Asia. Oh, at the um, same time. Just like what I said, I, exactly, yeah. So I, I did a lot of classes, um, <laughs> but still pass. I still graduated on time or even early. So, yeah. Okay, tell us how you managed to manage two jobs and graduate on time slash early. Like, how did you do it? <laughs> right. So, I think in, in my uni, luckily, in, actually in my second year, I think a lot of the tests are not that hard, I would say. So, I actually managed to get even like four GPA, four out of four in my second year. And so I got into this specialized class where like they actually combine all of the 3.5 above GPA into one class, one, one subset of the year. So we call it ERP specialization where you actually learn about SAP. And because all these people are smart when it comes to the exams, all of these people would actually build like a Google doc where they would combine all of the potential questions in the exams so what i would do <laughs> I, I don't i don't learn anything before the task only d minus one i would actually download this and read and really 70 80 percent out of this google doc actually show up in the exam so all i need to do is just learn d minus one and pass so i think that helps without actually going to the class yeah i think i think that helps a lot because i don't need to do the hard work uh, most of the smarter people than me actually did the, the hard work on it is just summarize learn maybe memorize most of it and yeah do well in the passes and i think you did more than just pass to be in a special class with a 3.5 gpa right yeah, 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 <laughs> lucky yeah. you yeah yeah I, I was super lucky um and i think if i can point out one more thing so in our uni because i was in the information system study Every single person in this major would actually install a program called Microsoft PCU, where you would actually design your ERD, yeah, basically diagrams, right? Where you build databases and everything. I've never installed it in my computer ever. So this would be something that would be as weird as if like you're a designer and you never installed any Photoshop or like Figma or like, yeah, all the, yeah. The reason I don't have it is that Whenever there's a group task, I would actually do it in pen and paper. And I will always have someone smarter than me, right? And pass it to this person to actually build it on the app itself. So it feels like when I relate to that uni years and what I do today, or even at Talenta, I've always been the architect, right? Uh, but not actually the one that is executing. So I'm good in picturing it, visioning it. But then when it comes to the actual job, I may not be the best person uh, to do it. Okay, wow, that that is a premonition. <laughs> okay, I don't know if premonition is yeah, the right word, yeah. but it's a <laughs> it's a sign <laughs> of what yep, is to come. Yep, yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually so curious, like working at East Ventures and Tech in Asia in 2010, that's like a pretty remarkable role to have, like working in BC and being a tech journalist at the same time as, you know, when Indonesia's startup ecosystem is very early, like what did it actually look like working in those jobs in the day to day? Like what were your tasks? Were they easy? Were they hard? Like what was hard and all those other things? I think it's definitely not as glamorous as it is today. I don't think it's as sexy as it is today. I think today it's there's a bunch of VC associates. I think tech writers is also, I'm talking to one right now, right? So I think very different years. And so I think to be honest, there ha- there's not much to do back then as an investor back then. So most of it are like really Wilson. Uh, I'm just there with him. So I didn't do that much in the investing part. I think what I remember uh, as an achievement, maybe we were trying to build an accelerator back then before it was cool. So we did, I think, two batches and then we decided to actually shut it down. Uh, I think what we learned is that if you are smart enough and you are good enough as a founder, you don't need an, an accelerator back then. I don't know now. And you would actually just reach out to Wilson directly or find a way to reach out to Eastfighters directly without actually joining an uh, accelerator. As for being a tech journalist, again, this is, this was back in 2011. Um, I think I was paid, I think very, very low for a tech writer job. But then again, I, I didn't see it as a job. I think I just see it as a way to, for me to write about something and learn about something. And, and again, give me access to a lot of the founders, a lot of the ecosystem players as well. Um, because when you are, tech writer slash investor, then most of the time you will get your meetings, uh, right? Uh, so I use that. And I think that became my foundation of network. Otherwise, I think without it, I wouldn't do uh, a good job at Toronto or even now at Sendit. And I think that's a good point. Everyone wants to talk to a VC and everybody except for yeah. almost everybody wants to talk to a journalist and you have... You had both of them, so there was probably no reason exactly. for anyone to turn you down unless they're hiding yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I use that to the max for sure. How did you use it to the maximum? Would you go out and reach out to people even without like anyone at your jobs telling you to reach out to them? Like how did it how did it go? Yeah, I think I think back then this was also before LinkedIn was as apparent as today. I mean Back then, there wasn't really a timeline, right? Uh, and everything. So, um, I think there's a lot of, uh, reaching out to do. I mean, even harder back then compared to now. So I think having that credentials helps. Um, because back then I was, I was 19, right? So it's easy to get underestimated. Um, even back then. Um, so I used it in a way to gain access to events, conferences. Um, even building our own conferences as well. And yeah, basically people would know me better because I was exposed uh, to a lot of those. How do you reach out to people like in, in that time? Is it the same as now where you can maybe find their name on LinkedIn and then send them a message? Or like, do you have to ask people for intros? Do you have to find them at the event? Like, what did it look like back then? Yeah, I think I think... I think definitely a lot of events. Uh, I think I definitely have the first touch 
uh, most of the time through events and conferences. I think back then events are much more influential. This is a very, this might have opposing views, but like, I feel like back then it, it's, it is much more influential. Um, because I think back then you would go to a monthly networking event and like a lot of the key ecosystem player would be there. Um, but today I think unless it's like an invite only networking party or like, yeah, event, then actually there's not that much influential player, uh, that will come. So I think a bit different when it comes to events today versus like 10 years ago. And then, like, how did you end up starting your own startup? Like, what were the influences, you know, beyond just seeing the problem, right? Yes, I think my very first logic was actually when I looked at the job market back then, uh, and I see, like, how much salary would I get if I, let's say, work for someone versus if I build my own uh, startup, it's actually more or less the same. So I would argue that actually uh, the barrier of starting company might actually be lower back then because I think today, in a way similar to what people maybe in, in Silicon Valley have, where like you can work for the fang and earn like fat package versus like would you actually create a startup and piece through all of those hardships for a lottery ticket in a way. And so... That is my first logic. And then second part, I think I always want to build something um, because of uh, my early network of B2B. I've always wanted to build something related to that. And so actually before I started Talenta, there's actually a, a failed project before that. So I was trying to build Glints before Glints. And the reason for that is that similar to what they wanted to build, right? Um, I, I see the job portals. I wouldn't name who, but I, I guess everyone knows who. We all hate it, uh, but somehow we just have to post it, right? Uh, and you still get fascists anyways. And at the same time, I was actually back then a fresh graduate. So when I look for jobs, I feel like, why should I compete with someone who is not a fresh graduate? I should be I should be competing with similar fresh graduates. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe there's a room for that. But the learning lesson from that, I was too early. Um, I think then everyone was still applying for a job offline. You would still go to the job expos, drop your CVs traditionally, um, or you get your referrals. Let's say if my friend is working in any consultants, then you will get referred. And anyways, the top students will get will go to the top command seat anyways, so that they don't have any problems of getting jobs or like getting the top students. So I was not solving the right problem. And so I, I actually finished uh, my angel investor's money by just building that problem and failing. I think when I raised my angel, uh, so she's actually one of the daughter of the top 10 billionaire group called Ayapada. Uh, in Indonesia. So her name is uh, Grace Sahir. And another fun fact, Grace Sahir is actually cousin of Ronald. So again, when I say Ronald is influential, like, yeah, um, there's a lot of connections that points me back to him. And I met her because of my job at Akinita. So when we hold our first arena, start arena, she and her husband was building a BlackBerry app. 
again, today, why would you build a BlackBerry app back then? And everyone was using BlackBerry in Indonesia. So they were trying to build an Instagram for BlackBerry. And so we invited her to pitch uh, in Startup Arena. And she accepted. I mean, like, the thing about like why would a billionaire daughter pitch <laughs> an app and to be judged by like investors? But like she did. Um, and so I think we kept in touch after that. And like when I wanted to build my first company, I pitched to her and she actually said yes. But when I asked her like why, why would you invest in me? And she's like, I just want to help a fellow Christian. So again, believe it or not, that if it wasn't for her, I don't think there's going to be Taranta as well. So like she is the start. She was the start of Taranta, even though the first project was a failure. And then after failing that project, I was actually talking to all of the HR because I have already the connections with them. And when I talked to them, the same problem keep getting brought up, which is, hey, I run payroll on a spreadsheet. And it took me three days. And I was like, this is 2014. What are you talking about? Like, why Why there's no software to, to solve this? Um, and I look at the market and there is a software already, but it's all like on-prem, on-premise. It will cost you at least 100K um, just to actually do it. And I thought, okay, this is something that I feel can be my opportunity. And to make it even better, East Ventures team for that year, 2014, uh, for their fund was SAS. So I was in the same batch as Mocha, Kudo, and Journal. So all SAS. And I believe everyone actually exited today. And I, I guess something I'm curious about is like, when you had that first project, when did you know to stop? Like, when did you know mm. that it was time to quit it already and it wasn't really working? I think the short answer to that is we were running out of money, <laughs> right? Um, I think yeah. that's that's the easiest part. That's the easiest part to know. Uh, and I think number two, uh, when I was talking to both the top companies, uh, so for example, I actually pitched this to Derianto, uh founder of Traveloka, like, hey, would you put Traveloka in my site? And then it's like, why would I put my uh, my company in your site? Why? Um, and I couldn't really answer that. Uh, and so the same thing with the supplies, meaning that the talents, when I talked to the top students in my year, they were like, I already got a job. Like, why would I apply in your site? And so I really see that my solution is not solving any problems. Um, and I realized that, okay, I need to go back and really see if there's any other problem that is really more painful for the HR. So after you realized that, okay, it's not working, how did you sort of go about the next steps? Did you take a break for a while or did you go straight to finding the next pain point already? Yeah, I think I straight away found the payroll, luckily. And then when I already thought of like pivoting into SaaS for HR, I, again, just by destiny or like by luck, I had a catch up with Wilson in Tech in Asia, Tokyo, out of every place. Um, and so I was telling him like, hey, I raised an angel round, failed. Uh, I think I'm failing at this product, but I'm thinking of building a software for HR. And he's like, okay, let's, I'll invest. And it took him like five minutes. And yeah, he was like, hey, let me know. I will write the term sheet on my flight back to Singapore. 
And when I land, let me know. I'll, I'll just send you. So it was happening very, very quick. And yeah, once, once he, once I confirmed to my angel, everyone said yes, then yeah, we're off to build. And then how long did you build it for, for everyone's context? How long did you build Talenta? Um, you mean to when I, how long did I get to like product market fit? Like the whole. Yeah, both. Uh, from the moment that you found the right pivot until, right, you know, the product right. market fit until, until the end. Right, right. I think this is also what a lot of people underestimated. I think especially in B2B, especially the investors as well, I would say. I think we were thinking that six months would be enough for us to build, uh, but it actually took us a year to actually build something that people or um, companies would use. So by one year, we were actually already running out of money. And so by that first year, uh, because we don't have enough money, we have to delay some of the management salaries, including mine. Uh, we were have, we were having to stop paying for our social securities for the employees as well, just because we were running out of money. Luckily, back then we managed to raise a bridge round by EV and back then the name was Fanox. Now it's Pegasus Tech Ventures, I think. And I think right after we raised that bridge, I think just one to one to two months after that, we actually onboarded both Gojek and Grab as our first 10 customers. And I think, yeah, it just went on from there. Overall, I think I, I was building for four years before it was uh, acquired and then stayed for a year before I managed to, uh, went off. Okay. What was the hardest part about building Talenta during the early days, you know, apart from running out of money? Yeah, yeah. I think when I look back, one, I think post-COVID, digital everything or like trying to digitalize your business is kind of like the big keywords, right, post-COVID. But I think back then, like I had to explain to a lot of the management or the business owners what is called even as essential as that. And then I think number two, because of a lot of the business owners was like maybe in the 40s or the 50s, when you, especially when it comes to like traditional business owners, not, not the startup founders, they would look at me and like, what are you doing here? Uh, why are you building a software for payroll? Like at, at such a young age, what are you doing here? Uh, so I think it's more of like getting, gaining their trust to manage one of their most confidential data, which is again payroll, right? But then I think because luck was like again uh onboarding both Grab and Gojek uh at the same time. So I always pitch a lot of the companies like, hey, if you don't trust me, like why would both Gojek and Grab onboard it to us? So again, gaining trust of the payroll access um and explaining about cloud and like where do we actually store the data. Uh, was the hurdles back then. Today, I think it's getting more normal, like everything is cloud. But back then, you know, yeah, you really literally have to explain what is cloud. Yeah, like people don't understand like what it means to have the data on the cloud and like yeah. how private it yeah. is, what you can see, what yes. you can't see. Yeah. Exactly. Totally different from nowadays. A lot of people just upload things yeah. to apps now and they don't really know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, actually, it's the opposite now, I guess. How how did you even onboard Grab and Gojek, if you can share? <laughs> yeah, I think for Grab, 
um, I think when when they started their Indonesia operation, I got introduced to their back then launcher or one of the country head. And so we kept in touch. And then when when he was hired to build uh, Grab Indonesia, then I certainly pitched to him like, hey, can I you know talk to your HR? Um, so we got him pretty easily because back then they were also trying to look for an HR software. As for Gojek, um, again, this was also because of, I guess, my network when I was in tech in Asia. Back then, we, me and Willis was actually interviewing Nadim for an article. This was before Gojek. So um, again, kept in touch. And like when, when I was uh, building this payroll software and asking him and his team, uh, back then also Kevin, hey, do you guys have an HR software? And then they also said no. So like, yeah. Let me pitch to your HR. If your HR likes it, then it's good. If not, then um, no offense. Uh, offense, yeah, it's going to be all good even if you don't use us. Uh, but luckily, uh, both of them did yes. Yeah, I think it was, it was quite lucky that we actually built in the right time and they were not too big. Um, because if they are already like a thousand people, then they would need different uh, solution. I think the common theme is that like your network from when you were working in tech in Asia and you don't, I mean in and East Ventures really yes. like came together because I mean now we all recognize these names but when I'm sure when you first met them um they were not nearly yeah. as big or even not even half as big yeah. as they are now <laughs> like you you really never know where people will end up Yes yes and I think that's that's what really is important in B2B I would say um I mean in B2C Maybe in a way, if you have the the right funding and the right timing, then you can sort of like quote unquote buy in your way. Uh, but in B two B, I think even with like millions in funding or even more, it's different ball game. Uh, a lot of it are really relation based, so you cannot really win just by having more money. That's definitely one of the learning lessons as well. What would you say is like the personal cost of being a founder, having gone through it all? Like you had a first initial failed project, you've already built your own company and exited it, and now you've already done the transition period. What is the personal cost of being a founder after going through all that? Maybe something during your experience or even something you reflected on after. I would say that, at least for me, I had to go all in, meaning that Maybe you might find some founders that has like side business with cash flows or everything, but like I was all in because I again didn't come from a privileged background, I would say. So if Talenta would fail, then I would lose everything, uh, literally. So I think it was definitely mentally a lot of, uh, painful, uh, stress, uh, for me personally. So I think my final year, uh, running Talenta, um, I think I was on sleeping pills just to get to sleep because I think it was so scary for myself uh, when I think about what if Talenta failed after building it for so many years um, and it would be literally gone from this world. Uh, I couldn't really imagine a world without it. And at the same time, also having to think about the employees. What if I had to cut everyone and then tell everyone, like, hey, you don't have a job today. I think. Nowadays, with uh, the tech winters and everything, I know that layoffs are starting to be common somehow, but it is a painful process. Uh, I would say both for the employees and even the employers. Yeah, I think it took a lot of stress and mentally uh, mental pain for me. 
especially when I was also a single founder. So uh, nowadays, when I talk to potential founders, like potential people who wants to start a startup, I will always tell them like, hey, get a co-founder. Um, it's not an easy job. So if you're handling it alone, I think it'll be twice the stress, twice the load. So better get someone as a partner. What's the hardest part about being a solo founder that people may not realize? I think a lot of people say that being a founder is a lonely job. So it's, again, twice as lonely, right? Uh, you don't really have someone to talk to. Uh, when you have a co-founder, then at least, you know, you can probably get a drink and then, you know, you really put out every stress together and then you talk about it uh, to be stressed. But then for me, it was, yeah, there was none, right? I mean, back then, especially back then, I think I realized that whenever you meet or like you do a networking, you would always say like, oh yeah, everything is working well. Um, so you sort of like hide behind this mask, I guess. Uh, but then everyone is actually struggling. And yeah, I think that was the toughest. I think not having someone to share um, of this pain. I I guess I do have the early team members, but still like I think it's different weight to bear. Yeah, I think that was the toughest part. What was the scariest part that would really keep you up about, you know, what if Talenta just failed and disappeared from this earth? Like, what was this really scary part that kept you up the most? I think just for the fact that, like, you built something and then suddenly, like, one day it's just gone, right? I don't know whether this would be a good example, but, like, let's say you're in a relationship with someone for, like, three, four years and then suddenly they just ghost at you and, like, disappear. Like mm. you cannot re- find this person anymore in the internet, like everywhere. Um, so that feeling of like, yeah, you don't know what will happen. Uh, you don't know how to move on from it. Yeah, I think that was the first one. But also, again, I think it's the people um, because you already pitched them to join your crazy ride. And then suddenly like, you would tell them like, hey, it's over uh, and we couldn't afford to pay you anymore. Um, mm. So it feels like, I couldn't bear the disappointment uh, that would be a result of failing. How many employees did you have at Talenta before you guys got acquired? I would say we're between 100 and 110, I think, back then. So yeah, 100 back then. How, how did you start the business You know, at your age, at a very early point in the tech ecosystem and learn to scale yourself to you know, managing 100, 110 employees. I mean, now, I mean, for one, you're a solo founder. Two, I don't think there are nearly as many resources as there are now to how to be a founder, how to be a manager, all these things. So how did you manage to scale yourself to to manage all those people and to build the company to what it is and what or what it was at least until it was acquired? Very good question. I think even until today, I was, I'm, I'm still learning. And to really fly back to that early days. I, I still even remember where to hire my first engineer. I have to like message a thousand engineers on LinkedIn just because I don't have access to it. Nowadays, I think I think even some of the VC funds are like providing like recruitment uh, advisory. Um, you have a lot of headhunters today. Um, so I think in a way it's easier if you have the money, but back then like, I don't even know where to start. So I just brute forced my way to it. 
And and actually, that's one thing that I realized. I mean, we're like, after running Talenta, I don't think I'm a good CEO for like scale uh, for when you have to scale the company. I realized that I love and I'm better at zero to one versus like when you turn product into a company. And so when you when you ask me like how do you learn to scale, to be honest, I'm just like learning by doing, and I don't think I did a really good job at it. Um, I think when I see a lot of the like series A series B startups today, I think it was also a result of like 10 years of startups where like nowadays for you to build your management layers, I think it's easier than it is back then. But also I think I was not a very good, I guess I couldn't really hire a very top management to build my first management layer. And so what I did was just trying to promote internally. And I don't know whether that's the best option. Uh, but I think when I look or learn from the US, for example, I think they always try to bring someone from outside and like actually build up the management and prop up that for like, for every series A, B, C, you keep propping up your management layer. But I don't think I'm a good person or founder or a CEO for that. So even until today, like I think what I do at Sendit is again, zero to one. I don't think I'm good at scaling. And I guess, what is it like to exit? I know I always have to cover those in basketball, like a company exited to blank or a company IPO'd, but I'm sure like everything in like the startup funding world, it's not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. So like, what is the hard part also about exiting or the parts about exiting that people might not realize? Sure. I think we got lucky in a sense that before we actually sell to uh, Makari, we were actually talking to another unicorn. And so I think first part that people don't realize is that how you should have your data room ready, uh, right? I think I think it's being mentioned today in, in articles and like how do you build your data room and everything. But when you're preparing yourself to getting to get acquired, you need to prepare a lot of like data and everything. Um, and so I think that's definitely tough. But because we have that experience before Makari, we have it ready. And so when Makari, when we talk to Makari, then it's very fast. Number two, I think the hardest part is actually telling your team because I think it's easier when you say like, oh, you're acquiring a company versus like you're getting acquired especially when it's not a super big acquisition, right? Unless you tell your employee like, hey, everyone will get like 10-year salary bonus, then, you know, everyone is happy. Uh, but then we were actually essentially selling to uh, a second player, meaning that we were leading in the HR space, but then we have to sell to a second player. And so when we announced it uh, in the town hall, I think I still remember the faces uh, when I actually told them, like, hey, we're getting acquired by them. Rather than a fanfare, I was looking at disappointed faces, actually. So even though, like, on my, in my heart, like, I was feeling a sense of relief because, okay, now at least we're not going to die. But again, to look at them and, like, see the disappointment, like, I don't know whether I did. Uh, I made a a good decision um, back then. 
at that point of time. Again, unless your exit is like super big, then maybe it's a better way to celebrate. But like ours are not as big, I would say. And believe it or not, like the day when I worked, the last day that I worked at, at Makari, like nobody sent any message to me like, hey, Josh, good job. Like, like uh, I'll see you next time. Like n- none of the employees that I have back then said that to me. So I was like, wow, I, I built this for like five years and like nobody reached out. But I guess at the end of the day, like, you know, I, what I realized is that at the end of the day, it's business. I can't take it personally, but I shouldn't. And, and that's also why when people see me traveling during my sabbatical and they're like, wow, Josh, you're, you keep traveling. Must be fun. Actually, in my heart, I was like, I wanted to tell them that I was not traveling for the sake of traveling. I was traveling to do a therapy in a sense, right? Uh, because you just want to forget in a way. You just want to move on from that part of your life because Although it is externally seen as an achievement, but there are some pains or like things that you don't see from outside until you talk to me. Would you say that like the whole process of building a startup, not just, you know, the life post exit is like not trying to live a double life, like outside, it always looks good um, because of the, you know, the words like, oh, acquisition or funding all these things but and then obviously like being called a founder or ceo whatever but living a different life maybe because the company is failing or because like everything is just plain hard like do you agree that it's a a double life and how how did you manage that process because it's a very personal thing right to to build a company of your own even if there's like an early employee it's not nearly as personal as it is to you so how did you really manage that while you were a founder and especially like post exit, like trying to leave that whole personal thing to you. I mean, I think you mentioned like also that you're, you were afraid that the company would just disappear. But I think in one way, like your company also got renamed after. And I feel like it's sort of very, not the same, but very similar. Right. So how did you manage all that? I don't yeah. know how I would. <laughs> yeah, I guess again, at the end of the day, like, what I usually do is really talk heart to heart with founders who would open up as well. Actually, recently when I visited Malaysia, I had a catch up with a founder of Kaudim and they were also going through some rough patch as well because they had to actually uh, close up. And we talked for like four hours. And, and at the end of the four hours, um, the founder actually told me like, hey, this actually feels like a therapy. I, I couldn't get it out when I talked to other people, but like when I, when I was with you, because I can relate to your stories, like I can actually get out all of my stories as well. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, like we need to find someone who can open up as well. So then you two can relate to each other and like be more honest. And so, yeah, I guess in a way, promoting honesty of your journey, I think it's, it's good. And I, that's something that I wanted to do more as well post exit right i think it's easy to hide behind all this stuff but like i think when when you become real then you also can see the reaction of people after that but of course the other side is back to my personal stuff which is the religion i think i always try to decompress by yeah praying uh going to the church and yeah meeting with the circles of church as well 
How did you move on post-exit? You said you went on a sabbatical and traveled. Um, and now we all know that you're at Sendit. But how did that sort of allow you to move on? And like, as you said, like, how is it a therapy for you? Yes, I think the traveling part itself, I think more of like when you use, I think when you travel, you try to see new things. And so you're just trying to fill in more new stuff so then the old stuff would probably not really disappear but at least uh, because you gain a lot of new memories then hopefully the old painful memories can be hidden in a way uh in the basement right uh we'll still have that baggage but then um at least you decompress that and at the same time i think i don't think i will ever be able to fully move on uh but maybe in a good way because i think even until today I would still get messages of people like, hey, Josh, I use your software now. Uh, I use Talenta, right? I, whenever I meet people, or even like nowadays, even my dad, he would actually told me, hey, I met a friend the other day and like, he is also using Talenta. So like, you know, I think that's a dream come true for a lot of builders where like, you don't even do anything, right? And and you keep getting mentions of like, oh, you're I'm using your product. Um, so even though, maybe financially or like maybe on an achievement level it's not as big as the rest of the exits but i think today actually my dream if my sons or daughter or even my grandsons or daughter one day if they get a job their facelift would be from talenta i think that would be that would mean a lot more than a million dollar for me and i guess like one thing i'm very curious about is like once you're a founder, it's a very different kind of journey, very different kind of experience. And I think some people tell me that like, hey, after after this, I don't know how I could not be a founder. But you you were able yeah. to work at a different company, you're able to work at Sendit. Was it difficult to make that transition? And what even made you say yes to to working for someone else? I guess the story was by the end of uh, 2019, by the end of my sabbatical, I was actually already talking to a lot of founders or CEOs and trying to see where my value is or like where my, where I, where would I fit inside their organizations? And I think a lot of those conversations always resulted in like people trying to put me inside a box. So like, Oh, Josh, uh, would you be my PP of sales or PP of product or like PP of business development? So there's always like a position where like you're specialized. And what I realize is that I don't think I'm that good in each of those positions. And if I took that role, then I would probably only disappoint and, and ruin our relationship uh, with the founders that I joined. So I actually ended up not taking any of those overs back and around 2019. And early 2020, I was actually thinking to build again because my heart, I thought God was telling me like, hey, Josh, build again. And so what I did was January and February, I built a pitch deck and I actually pitched on several of my PC friends. Believe it or not, like everyone rejected me. Uh, but of course, they, do, they don't say no. They say, yeah, um, keep in touch. Um, let me know if you raise, if you find a lead of, of uh, funding. And, and even in my prayers, I was like, God, I thought this was supposed to be easy because this is my second time. 
but again, God has different plans. Um, and so, uh, during those fundraising, I also somehow got connected again with Moses because, um, we were already in touch when actually Moses started, started in Indonesia back in 2015. So because we were together in Pastor by East Ventures, I got introduced to him and, and we were in touch back then, but I, uh, didn't really know that they were that big. Uh, fun fact was actually even when we announced the exit to Makari, uh, actually Moses gave me a call and like, he was like, Josh, why don't you sell? Why didn't you sell to us? And then I told him like, I didn't know that you can buy. I mean, <laughs> it's not like I was, I was, I was offering it to everyone, right? So, so it was, yeah. So I think that was my, that was one of Moses' regret, uh, of like, I wish just Josh knew that he can sell to send it. Um, and so, uh, we kept in touch and then early 2020, we had a catch up and it was actually not a short conversation. I think we had to like go back and forth for like a month even. I didn't know where he got his time because after I joined, I know that he's super busy. So I didn't know how, how he could be super patient, uh, with all of my questions and my negotiations. So I said yes to his offer of like, yeah, why don't you build instead of send it? And then I still remember my first meeting with him at Sandit's office of my thing. When I said yes, I was drawing of like things that I'm thinking of building. And then, and then he's like, oh, Josh, actually that's something that we've been thinking of building. So again, I see somehow like everything is online and to quote or like to put this story into a biblical <laughs> story, as everyone knows, like, yeah, Joshua is like, you know, the next leader after Moses. So yeah, again, everything falls aligned. And like, I feel that was also the answer of my prayer to God, right? I mean, if I did build my startup, I mean, it could have been a successful too, but like in a way, um, I joined and then first week after I joined, COVID happened, right? And so I was like, oh God, thank you. <laughs> um, even until today, like I, I have a job after three years. Thank you, God. Like, yeah, I don't think I'll be talking with you today if I did build that startup. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm building what I wanted to build anyways, instead of send it. So I don't think I could have been, I could have wished anything better. Um, I guess one thing I'm also curious about is like, what about the, I guess the environment or what? about the whole company allowed you to join? Like apart from being able to build, I think there are lots of companies that, well, maybe maybe not at the time, but that allow you to sort of run these sorts of different test products, like do R&D or something like that. Is there anything specific to send it or about what you saw that made you say like, okay, even if I'm now going to have to work for somebody, I think this is better than building my own company again. I think first thing first, I think I really wanted to stay true to my expertise slash DNA. And I think Sandit shops that a lot, uh, meaning that their vision is to build digital infrastructure for South Asia. And I can definitely relate to that. And I think I would say that only B2B founders understand other B2B founders, meaning it takes time to build an infrastructure. And, and Moses knew this, right? He experienced that from 2015 until today and and he will give me the time uh to build so i think one is 
the re- relatable industry, B2B. Number two, I think when I, this actually push joining uh, and what made me stay is that I think when I look at the way he built the organization and the culture, I still remember when I was building Palenta, we would put our company culture, uh, we would plaster that in our walls and everything. We would literally meet people, try to memorize our company culture during provision, you know, um, things like that. But I think after joining Sendit, I realized that culture is not something that you memorize. Culture is something that you feel, right? And and I really feel that uh, when I was working at Sendit, when we have to, when we all had to move to remote, a lot of people, a lot of my founder friends are like struggling um, because they have never been remote. They don't have as much trust to their employees. So they feel the need to like see everyone working at the same room. But like, I think Moses and his team of the founders have built such a culture where like, even if people work from Bali or like any holiday places, they would just trust them to, you know, still work, even though like there's so many distractions, right? And, and that's what I felt even until today. There's just so much trust and trust means you will also liberate people to work when and where, right? Um, and, and you would believe that it will, um, give their everything. And that is also given to me by Moses. Like he doesn't, I think for a lot of founders, you would hate it if your boss is like breathing under your neck all the time. And then Moses actually gave me that independence. Otherwise, I don't think I would last, uh, three years. So I just celebrated three years, uh, this month. So, you know, three years is a long time. And I guess to close, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody that I speak with for the podcast. And that is, you know, outside of work, what is one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? That could be something you want to achieve this month, next year, in 10 years, or just at any point in your life. But what comes to mind um, when I ask you, like, outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? Again, because of my, I guess, personal dark past of like growing up in a uh, broken home family. I think I, even if I'm not a successful person, uh, I, I would love if my life can inspire someone who would be successful. Uh, whether that's going to be my own kids or someone who I don't even know, not even in Indonesia, not even, you know, um, in, in uh, this part of the region. Uh, I hope that my life uh, can inspire people. Um, even if my life in itself, like not really super successful or anything. Yeah, that's, that's my goal. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, Joshua. I really like, I learned a thank lot. Thank you so much. It's just like great to hear everything. Like there's so much that you don't see when you look at all the stories exactly. online. And even from just meeting you once, I don't, or even five times, maybe I wouldn't have been able to ask you all these, but I'm grateful that I got to today. Honors is all mine. Uh, thank you so much for letting me tell my stories. And I hope people don't uh, get bored of my stories. Uh, and hopefully, yeah, people will be inspired by it and inspired by your stories as well. Not boring at all. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.